You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. Let's start off today with a story. A week ago, Wednesday, I received a surprising phone call. I was just wrapping up our elders meeting that morning and uh, saw, sure enough, someone was calling me and it was Steve Bragg. This is Steve. Maybe some of you recognize a picture of Steve Bragg. He is the missionary and church planter who started really the work in the Philippines that last October, myself and a few others from Hill City had the opportunity to go over and join and be a part of uh, some youth conferences over there. It's actually a mission that we support as Hill City Church. And this phone call wasn't surprising because it's, uh, it's really not unlike Steve to give me a call out of the blue. I've actually spent very little time in person with Steve. Most of our interactions have been phone call interactions leading up to planning that mission trip. Unfortunately, his health caused him not to be able to join us in October, but I've just gotten to know him over, uh, over the months. The reason I was surprised to receive a phone call from Steve a week ago Wednesday is because just a few days earlier, I saw this social media post on Facebook. Uh, Steve is on hospice currently, and he posted this that just said, getting ready to say goodbye to you all and hello to my God. And you can see this post has been shared over a dozen times, over 243 comments. It's a lot of people. You can tell just even, even through that, the impact that this man has made for God's kingdom. He has a condition called pulmonary fibrosis, which is essentially lung failure. Increasingly, scar tissue builds up on the lungs until eventually they fail, and there is no current known cure for this condition. And so I saw this phone call from Steve, and I had to press silent because we were like right in the middle of an elder meeting, and I called him right back afterwards, and I was curious, like how did I make it on this guy's list of people to call in his final days? And the reason why he called me was to encourage me and to minister to me. And he wanted to have an opportunity to thank our church for partnering with the work in the Philippines. And he wanted to pray for me. And I was like, I should be praying for you right now, man. And it it was true, genuinely, uh, an unexpected, a very surprising phone call, and yet a conversation that I will remember for the rest of my life. Uh, I, I also asked Steve's permission if I could share with you all this morning. He's actually going to be watching uh, our YouTube live stream. So, uh, so he should hear this story himself as well. And you can be praying for Steve in these final days. But one gift that I received through that phone call that really I hope to share with you is the perspective change that someone gets when they're in their final days. Death is a sobering topic. I recognize it's not the happiest way for a a sermon introduction. And yet, it has a way of clarifying, this is the gift, clarifying the things in life that are actually the most important things. I mean, think about your day-to-day life and all of the things that typically you worry about or you think about or maybe even you're so consumed with and you live for. When you have the end in mind, 
Moses wrote in Psalms, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might present a heart of wisdom to you. When you live with the end in mind, all of a sudden, the things that maybe were very, very important to you start to fade away, and perhaps the things that maybe you've been neglecting rise to the top. And the gift to us is you don't have to wait until you have a terminal diagnosis to live this way. You can live with the end in mind. You don't have to make it to the end of your life full of regret, full of sorrow. You can be like Steve, where that conversation with Steve was very, very encouraging and uplifting because although he lived his early adult years, he didn't actually come to Christ until later in life. From the moment that Christ got a hold of his life, he lived wholeheartedly for the kingdom of heaven. And so maybe for you, you're, you're here today and you feel like, man, I'm in my 40s, I'm in my 50s. I feel like I've already lived not the right way. Today can be the day that you actually make that change and begin to prioritize the most important things. All of us have the opportunity to live a life of significance. Dallas Willard says this, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. And so today, as we come near the end of Paul's letter to Timothy, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to be really asking that question, who are you becoming? And how are you living? And are you prioritizing the most important things of God's kingdom? So let's go ahead and jump into our text for today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll be starting off in the second half of verse 2. This is what Paul writes to his young apprentice, Timothy. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. If you've been with us at all this summer, you know that Paul's primary concern in writing this letter to Timothy is these ungodly teachers, is these false leaders. And here, what we have is we have really a contrast to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is really a a characteristic list of godly leaders, of godly people. You might remember in 1 Timothy 3.1, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, notice the contrast, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. So if you have the godly list of qualifications in chapter 3, think of this as like the anti-list, okay, in chapter 6. These are the list of disqualifications. If it helps you, we're going to be listing out six traits of toxic leaders, okay, if you like making lists. Six traits of toxic leaders. You don't want to waste your life following these kinds of people, and you also don't want to become one of these kinds of people. As we've looked at leadership in 1 Timothy, it's not just about the people who show up on a church website. It's not just about church staff. The reality is these are characteristics 
which should be true in our lives as well. And, and today, these are kind of anti-characteristics. These are toxic traits that we need to not just look at our leaders that we follow. We also need to identify our own lives. This has to do with the person that you and I are becoming. The first one is arrogant. Toxic trait number one of six. Arrogant. Paul says that these false teachers are puffed up with conceit. Unhealthy leaders find a way to make everything about them. Someone gains power, they gain authority, they gain prestige, and what happens? It gets to their head. It gets to their head. And there's a way to live above reproach and to be a leader without, it, without you looking down on other people. What can happen so often is you reach some kind of level and you feel like you've earned that level and now you can flip it around and use that power for yourself, for selfish motives, for selfish means. And this is really a temptation for all of us. Arrogance, pride, it goes back to the Garden of Eden, wanting to make the rules, wanting to take control. Today, really, the title of the the message today is Open Hands, and this is the opposite. It's closed hands, wanting to have control of our own lives. The mind of Christ, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, is humility. It's considering the needs of others. It's considering the interests of others. It's serving others. The passage that Jake read earlier, there's no other kind of leadership style in the kingdom of heaven other than servant leadership. It's the only leadership style available to us if we're going to be leaders in the way of Christ. So we can just look in the mirror and ask, do you notice this toxic trait in your life? Is there arrogance? Are you always right? The second toxic trait is ignorance. An ignorant leader, Paul says, understands nothing. This is in contrast to the qualification of being able to teach, being able to understand scripture, understand theology. He says that these leaders are contrary to the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word sound is hugiaino, which is where we get our word hygiene from. And you might remember this from earlier in our series, that it's the difference between healthy and unhealthy. The difference, between, the difference between toxic or sick and good for you kind of teaching. And so ignorant leaders are ignoring the words, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when you and I think of the word ignorance, there's really two kinds of ignorance. The first kind is someone who's just unaware. And that, the, the antidote for that, for a leader who's unaware of the truth, is really easy. You make someone who's unaware, what do you make them? You make them aware. Well, let's just read. Let's just read the word together. I was like, "Oh man!" And they learn. They can actually learn. But this kind of ignorance that Paul is talking about is way more dangerous, because these elders in Ephesus once were aware. This is a willful ignorance, an intentional ignorance. This is a departure from the truth. And this, this kind of ignorance is way more dangerous because it's impossible. And as you see the lethal combination, arrogance plus ignorance, it's impossible to, to teach that person anything because they already think that they know everything. And in fact, their kind of ignorance is, is they believe that they've actually moved beyond the truth. Do you see this in our culture at all today? I see this in false uh, teachers today in our culture all the time. It's an idea 
that the biblical narrative, that the gospel truth, that the Bible itself is archaic, outdated, and someone finds some new interpretation, or they make some new interpretation, and they say something like, now I'm finally enlightened. Now I'm the one who's evolved, or I'm progressing. And for, for, for those kind of leaders, we just have to call it what it is. Progress for those leaders isn't progress, it's regressing in their understanding. That person needs to, once again, come to a knowledge of the truth. If you encounter a leader like that, you have to watch out about their message. If they are the one who's found some kind of secret knowledge, secret interpretation, or they talk about graduating from the gospel, moving beyond. The church was good for a time in my life, but now I'm beyond it. I've evolved. I've reached another level. That's the same old lie that these leaders are believing in Ephesus. The third toxic trait is argumentative. There's an unhealthy craving for controversy. Do you know anyone like this? Are you someone like this? You might hear someone use the phrase, now I'm just going to play devil's advocate. It's like, do you really, who, do you, who do you really want to be advocating for? I mean, just think about that phrase. Is that really a good thing? To be the one who's always having to kind of prod the conversation, always having to be right, always having to critique, hypercritical kinds of people. There's just a desire, as opposed to, in, in, in chapter 3, verse 3, not quarrelsome. A sign of a healthy leader is, is not necessarily an avoidance of conflict. Certainly, there's always going to be conflict in the church, and healthy leaders need to know how to enter into conflict, but there's a difference between being willing to enter into conflict as a peacemaker and a desire to enter into conflict, a craving for conflict. These kinds of people actually enjoy it because it gives them an opportunity to use and abuse their power, to feel big, to hurt and belittle other people. You've got to watch out for people who are like this, but you also have to be careful not to become a person like this. In our social media age where everyone can tweet, everyone can post, what's on your mind? Is it really a good thing to always share publicly what's on your mind? Obviously not. We tell our kids, right? You don't have to say it. You don't have to do that. And that's the, that's the case with an argumentative kind of person. The third toxic, or the fourth toxic trait of unhealthy leaders is divisiveness. And I've grouped really a number of these things together, and, and I think they really all fun, fall under the umbrella of divisive. This is envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. That's just another way of saying this person is always causing problems in community. It's really difficult to even sit at a dinner table for more than 10 minutes with this kind of person. It's, it's certainly difficult to be in a life group with them. They are the common thread in every situation that shows up. They have a problem with this group and that group and this person and that person, and eventually you have to step back and say, maybe it's not the culture, maybe there's a common thread here. Maybe there's a divisive person. If you know Paul's words about division in the Bible, they're some of the most harsh words that he has for any kind of person in the community. God desires unity for his church. Amen? Amen. Jesus, John 17, read that chapter. One of his great prayers before he would go to the cross is this deep desire 
for the same kind of unity modeled in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this beautiful picture of unity, to be embodied by his people. And when we reach that kind of unity, what does he say is going to result? The world will know him. So if that's what God desires, do you think the enemy desires that? The enemy actually desires division in the church. So a divisive person is not doing the Lord's work. They're actually doing the devil's work for him in a community. You've got to watch out for divisive leaders, but you also have to be cautious not to become a divisive person. The fifth toxic trait is just unhealthy. It's really the best way to say it. That these kind of leaders, Paul says, they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. This is in contrast to a leader who is sober-minded. Nothing is clouding their vision. Nothing is clouding their mind. Unhealthy teaching doesn't just appear. Unhealthy teaching is a result of an unhealthy person. Does that make sense? Someone interpreted the Bible poorly through a lens of their own unhealth. Depraved in mind and deprived of the truth is another way of saying that person needs help. There's something off mentally or emotionally, and that person really shouldn't be leading others until their own soul has been attended to. And we should be advocates of leaders getting healthy, right? Isn't that what you want? We should be advocates of it. And too often what we see, and this, this should actually grow a little bit of compassion, Because it's easy to read these words through a very critical lens of Paul as being hypercritical of leaders. Now, he is being critical of the leaders in Ephesus, rightfully so. There's heresy being spread. People are being drawn away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That's very serious. And yet, there are also moments where Paul kind of shows his hand a little bit. He actually cares that these people come back to the truth. His desire is for even some of the false teachers to repent and come back to Christ and to be re- maybe to be reconciled with the community that they've hurt. And so we should be advocates of unhealthy leaders becoming healthy as opposed to so often what we see in the American church machine, which is the only thing that people care about is the output and the performance and meeting the quota and meeting the budget and preaching the sermon. And, and as long as the work gets done, we don't care what it costs the leader, their family, or their own soul. And, and I think this is, this is maybe a, pro, a cultural problem that we have in the American church where the, the, the ministry or the mission goes forward at all costs. And no one is, is maybe taking a step back and saying, are we first asking the question, is the leader healthy? Did they have a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ himself? Is their family healthy? Because we can actually win, and in doing so, in some ways, we've also lost. And so we should, this this should be motivation for us to be praying for our leaders, caring for our leaders, encouraging our leaders to be pursuing health in their lives. And then the last toxic trait, number six, if you're taking notes, is these kind of leaders are greedy. They look at godliness as a means of gain, and that's a a financial gain, as opposed to, in 1 Timothy 3.3, a godly leader is not a lover of money. Now, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, that 
Paul has already set a precedent, and there is a, a large biblical precedent for ministry leaders to be financially supported by the church, right? We don't have to rehash that. We, we've looked at that before. And so there is a difference, though, in financial support of a pastoral staff or, or a church staff and a leader who's in it for monetary gain, who's in it for greed. And sometimes it's difficult to see on the surface even the difference between those two. We just have to acknowledge part of this has to do with the heart posture of the individual. And yet there are also certain things that you can look at which are a tell that somebody doesn't really care about the mission of God. Really, they only care about the money. They're only doing it for the paycheck. I think of John 10 and Jesus referring to the hired hands. There's a good shepherd, and then you have the wolves, and then you have the thieves and the robbers, but then you have the hired hand. And the hired hand, it's not that they're evil necessarily, but they're not in it for the mission. They're not in it for the sheep. What are they in it for? They're just in it for the money. And we have to be cautious about these kind of leaders as well. People shouldn't get into ministry to make money. First of all, that's just a bad business strategy. <laughs> There's way, way better careers that you could pick. If you're in it for money, don't go to Bible college, right? But there's really two main problems. The first problem with this is a church leader who's in it for monetary gain will inevitably hurt the witness of that church and the community. Because people can sense this. They can smell this. The moment they walk in the door, you can see this, right? With the kind of, you know, we looked at preachers and sneakers before, the kind of cars, the kind of how, and you kind of start to wonder, wait, why, why is that person, why do they have so much nice stuff? I'm not saying that, that church staff should live in poverty or anything like that, but we, we just have to recognize people can tell, and it will inevitably hurt the witness of the gospel through that church community. So that's the first reason. And the second reason that this is especially troubling is if, especially let's think of a preacher or a teacher, is in it for the money, eventually what will happen is they will begin to change the message that they're preaching not on what is the most faithful to God's word, but they will adjust and change and tweak and cater their message to whatever sells. You see that? And I can tell you that faithfulness to God's word is not a straight path to popularity. I can tell you that from my own life. That you, you try to stay as faithful and humble and obedient to the word of God, you will offend people. And there's a way to be overly offensive and unnecessarily offensive. We have to be careful about that, right? But I'm just saying that God's word challenges us and it convicts us. And the moment that a preacher is in it for money, they start to edit out difficult passages of scripture so that they can gain a larger following or sometimes forsake the gospel altogether just so they can gather large crowds and make lots of money. So you can see how these are six toxic traits of leaders, right? So Paul, in giving us these traits, is warning us. And I would just ask you, before we talk about the leaders that we follow for just a moment, are any of these true of you in your life? Are any of these, do you, when you look in the mirror, think of, think of these arrogance, ignorance, argumentative, divisive, unhealthy, greedy. See, none of these things are what you think of when you think of this, this crazy moral failure that somebody should be removed from ministry. Many of these are subversive. They're easy, they're sins that are easy to live with for a little while. 
that you can allow to feed in your life or fester underneath the surface. Do any of these have a hold on you? If so, I want to challenge us as a church. Would you just open your hands and allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to grow the fruit of His Holy Spirit in your life? In 2 Timothy, there's still this issue. Paul's second letter to Timothy, there's an issue of these kind of leaders. And you can read more about it in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. But at the end of that section, this is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, these people having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And what does he say to do? Let's all read that last sentence. Three-word sentence. Avoid such people. People who have the appearance of godliness. People who have not, this, not a genuine godliness. People who embody these kind of things. What are we supposed to do? Avoid such people. Now, in, in saying that, what Paul is not saying is he's not saying that we should never associate with anyone outside of our church family. Right? You see Jesus... We have to balance this with a a good interpretation of Jesus' own ministry. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How in the world are you going to win anyone to Christ if you only spend time with Christian people? This makes sense. This is what it means to be the salt of the earth. He's not saying that you should always avoid anyone with sin in their life. What he's saying is don't follow toxic leaders. And we need to actually evaluate, assess your life. Are there any podcasts that you follow? authors that you read, YouTubers, bloggers. It's not just, you know, in per, like certainly in-person people who have too much of an influence in your life, but are there any voices in your life that, that you would take a step back and you would say, that person is actually drawing me away from the gospel? They're not strengthening my faith. They're, we, they're actually sowing seeds of division in my life. And it's very, very important to either put boundaries on how big of a voice that person has or potentially cut those voices out of your life all together. We don't want to waste our lives following toxic leaders. As Paul continues with Timothy, he dives deeper into this idea of greed. Look at second, or 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be Content. So in contrast to these leaders who are really use, kind of monetizing ministry, they're using ministry as a means to get rich, there's this idea of contentment. Materialism, consumerism, accumulation, it's really one of the great idols in America. And unfortunately, it shows up in the American church, in American Christianity. These are temptations for all of us, aren't they? For someone who doesn't have enough. If you feel like you're living in a scarcity mindset, you don't have enough. There's this desire for more. I wish I could have more so that I didn't have to worry about next month's rent. I wish I, you know, and there's a certain element of trying to be wise with your finances and there's, you know, you know using biblical principles about saving and giving and generosity. But there's this, there's this Maybe you're here today and you're feeling that financial pressure. You're feeling the economy. You're feeling inflation, whatever that looks like for you. And there's this, I wish I had more. I wish I had more. Maybe for you, you're, you're somewhere you know, on, on the upper end and you have, you have more, but it hasn't satisfied. And the reality is it's not just for people who don't have enough. For people who have more than enough, I always say it like this. The more that you have, the more that you have to worry about. Did you know that's how it works? For many people, they feel like, well, if I had more, then I would be content. 
The reality is, oftentimes, the more that you have, now you have to insure the boat. Or now you have to keep up with the extra property. Or now you have to, you see what I'm saying? So the more that you have, the more that you have to worry about. And maybe for you, you're not, you're not at the lower end or the upper end. You're somewhere in the middle. And you want to reach that upper end of the spectrum. And you, you know, so there's this, there's this desire. And what greed really is, it's an insatiable hunger for more. And contentment is a constant state of satisfaction. And I just want to ask you this question. This is a challenging question for all of us. How much is enough for you? Is there a dollar amount? How much is enough? If you feel that, if you kind of feel that, I wish I had more, I wish I had more. How much will ever be enough for you? I want to give you a a thought exercise it helps to close your eyes to visualize this, or maybe this is a good exercise to do when, you know, take a journal and do this later on, or, or, or later on have a discussion about this. I want you to imagine everything you own in two piles, okay? Like that word piles. What is all our stuff? It's just a pile. It's just a pile of stuff, okay? So you got two piles, and one pile, so like spring cleaning, and maybe you've done this. You're like, you've got the, you know, the keep and the throw out or the donate or whatever. Two piles of everything you own, absolutely everything you own. It's all on the table. One pile is need, and these are things that you, things that you need. And you got to be real about that, like, because sometimes we say, well, I need an iced mocha frappuccino tomorrow. I don't know if you know what the word need means. Okay, things that you need, necessary for life, for survival, right? Things that your family need, and on the other pile, it's just want. What are, you, what are your things you want? Those are things you don't need, but you at least wanted them at one point in time, otherwise you wouldn't have them, right? Maybe you don't want it anymore, but if, if, it, if you don't need it, there's only one other pile here, where does it go? It goes in the want pile. Do that for a moment. Sort through the things that you own. Think, think through your house, your living room. Think through your car. Think through your clothes. Think through that. And you start sifting that, putting all the things in the need pile and then put everything else you own in the want pile. Which pile is likely bigger? The want pile. Even if you feel like you have that, I wish I had more, I'm having trouble paying. Which pile is bigger for most people? In, in America, this isn't true all over the world, by the way. In, in America, if we just do that simple thought exercise, what it reveals to us is we actually have way more than we need. In fact, we probably have way more than we even want. And then let me just ask you this question. How big of a want pile do you need to be content? And I would argue that your want pile can be absolutely empty, and you can still have 100% contentment and satisfaction in your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because contentment has nothing to do with how many wants and how many luxuries and how, many, how much extra you have. It has everything to do with your attitude and your posture towards your possessions. I want to give you two secrets to contentment, okay? Secret number one, we see this in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. The first secret for contentment, Paul writes this, not that I am speaking of being in need, okay? He's like, listen, I have what I need, for I have learned in whatever situation, somebody say whatever. Whatever, Whatever, that's any situation. 
plenty, scarcity, somewhere in the middle, whatever situation I am, to be content. Here's his secret. For I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You want to hear his secret? This is one of the all-time, like, most misquoted verses of the Bible. You ready for this? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not saying, like, you could jump off a cliff and fly. If you, it's not saying that. What's the all things? I can be content in all situations who strengthens me. That's the proper interpretation of that passage. Secret number one to contentment, trust in Christ's strength. Trust in Christ's strength. We are taught by Jesus Christ himself to pray this daily prayer. I try to pray this prayer first thing upon waking in the morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today, this day, our daily bread. If you have bread for just today, that's enough. That is truly what it means to trust in Christ's strength. We are taught by Jesus Christ himself. Not give me enough bread for tomorrow and six months and 20 years down the, down the road. If you have bread for today, you can be content with that. And in fact, if you're depending on God day to day, that gives you a greater opportunity to trust in the strength and the provision of Christ Jesus himself. And it's actually when we have more than enough, maybe exorbitantly more than enough, what it does is it gives us this illusion, this false sense that we can control our lives, that we make our own destiny. This is the American dream, by the way. And as as it turns out, the American dream often, for many, is more of a nightmare. When we have more, it's so tempting to rely on our own strength. And so secret to contentment number one is would you just open your hands a little bit on what you have and daily trust on Christ's provision. Daily trust God for your daily bread. Secret number two, Jesus actually gets to, after he teaches us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's not, you will have everything you want, you have all the money in the world, you have five cars, this is, this is your needs will be provided for, but he says this, if you seek my kingdom first. Here's secret for contentment number two, live for God's kingdom. Live for God's kingdom. This is what I'm talking about. If you were to just imagine that hospital bed moment for you, the things that become very, very clear in your life. Man, I, I wish I had that conversation with that relative about God's kingdom. I've heard, by the way, that, that Steve is actually having those conversations with friends and family members and bringing them to Jesus. Even though he's not sure how many days he has left, he's bringing people to Jesus even, even till his last breath. You don't have to wait for that, to have that clarifying vision. You can seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness when? Right now, today, this afternoon, Monday morning. Think about how much of our lives we spend accumulating more security, comfort, safety, entertainment, streaming services, nice things, clothes, outdated fashion, electronics, right? You see engineer obsolescence and they went bad and might, you know, whatever and and just think about it. If you were to just remove all of that and have this, this crystal clear vision for the only things that will go into eternity, God's kingdom, God's people, and God himself, would that change 
the way that you spend your time each day? Would that change the energy, the things that you focus on? And would you live for God's kingdom? Because I can tell you this, no one will regret living for God's kingdom when they meet Jesus Christ face to face. But how many people will be full of regret that they spent so much of their time pursuing things that they will not take with them into eternity? I want you to imagine a third pile, okay? First pile, what's the, what do we label it? Need. Second pile, want. This third pile, imagine it in your head. Take, okay? You're going to go ahead and take your needs and take your wants, and everything that you will take with you after you die, go ahead and put it in the take pile. <laughs> go ahead. As long as it's... What's in that third pile? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. J.D. Rockefeller at once was the richest man in the entire world. And he was at, one, of his, uh, one of his employees was asked after he died this question, how much, how much did he leave? You know, like someone was wondering how much was his net worth when he died? And the employee answered all of it. How much did he leave? Everything. Everything. It is sobering, okay? Thinking about, again, I recognize this, but this is very important because I don't know how else to shake American Christianity of the idolatry of accumulation and greed and consumerism. It's crept its way into the church. Remember the words of Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in this life, you might have seasons of plenty, seasons of scarcity. You might have seasons where God has given and you can praise God for that and thank him for his provision. You may also have seasons where God takes away. Will you still praise his name when he takes away? Because at the end of your life, he will take everything away every possession that you own anyways. And so this should inform and shape our perspectives. I once read a report of a hospice worker who would ask people in their last days about their, their, their greatest memories and joys and some of their greatest regrets. And one of the things I still remember to this day from that study is that men in particular wish they spent less time on their career, on work, working overtime, because we, I mean, and just to be real with this, because there is a, there's a healthy desire to provide for your family, to be a leader, to, to, care for, you know, to care for your family in that way, and there was a desire that I spent more time actually with the people, with my family, with my wife, with my children. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. So we continue through the text, 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. Paul writes these words, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you know what the Mandela effect is? Have you heard of that? Mandela effect is kind of this... Uh, psychological phenomenon where many people remember something differently than it actually was. Does that make sense? It's not necessarily like a hallucination or anything like that, but it's when everyone kind of remembers something wrong. A really good example is like song lyrics. 
right? Where everyone like sings that same chorus to that Taylor Swift song or whatever, and it's, it's wrong, but everyone just thinks it's right. And then you actually look the lyrics up and you're like, that's not actually what it says. You're like, well, surely we're not all wrong, but we actually are all wrong, right? That's what the Mandela effect. It happens with scripture as well. This passage right here is a classic example of the Mandela effect on a Bible verse. Often, this passage is quoted as money is the root of all evil. And that's not actually what it says in the Greek or in the English. It says the love of money. Everyone say love. The love of money is the root of all evil. And it's all kinds of evils. Not that every evil is, is a result of financial gain. Many are, though. And think about that. Think about all the sin done in the world for the sake of getting more. Think about human trafficking. At the heart of that, essentially, is greed and people trying to sell another human being repeatedly for the sake of making money. Think about all the crimes and all the violence done, taking, stealing, hurting, killing for the sake of money. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, again, written to these toxic leaders, they are described as lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. And this is, a, this is an opportunity for us to just ask ourselves, what do you love most? What do you love most? Money's not, not actually the problem. Money's powerful, but it's morally neutral. It's neither good nor evil. It's actually your attachment to it and what you do for it and what you do with it. The problem is actually disordered desires. The problem is actually an unhealthy love. Or as we see in the Old Testament, essentially that's just called idolatry. So what do you love most? And be real with this. You don't have to like raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you in class or anything like that. How would you fill in that sentence? I'm a lover of fill in the blank. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? What do you get most excited about? What would the people who know you best say that you love the most? What would the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you say that you love the most? And is it Jesus Christ? Lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, lovers of fill in the blank, all of those dethrone Christ Jesus in our hearts. Look at what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. You remember 1 Timothy is written to the church in Ephesus. By, Revelation, by the time the Revelation was written, this is still an issue for that church. Revelation 2 verse 4. Look at what Jesus Christ says to the church. But I have this against you. Here's his charge against the church in Ephesus. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love. It's not that the church never loved Jesus or never even loved Jesus the most. It's this subversive, this, this tempting idea that these things crawl and creep into our lives so slowly over time that we begin to worship them instead of worshiping our God. So here's the point for us today. Would you return to your first love? Would you return to your first love if there's anything else that has, has, has crawled into your life, that has dethroned Christ Jesus in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to give you the gift of clarity today. The distractions, 
the idols, all the things that we tend to be so frantic and worried about and just see clearly Jesus today. And would you return to your first love? And maybe for you, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You can come to Jesus as your first love today for the very first time. I want you to hear this and to know this, that Jesus loves you. He loves you so much. You might be asking the question, why? Why would I, why would I want to live with Jesus as king of my life? Why would I want to give my life to Christ? Because he gave his life for you on the cross. He loved you so much that he died on the cross for the sins of the world. He rose back from the grave three days later. He has the power to forgive your sins, to lead your life. He can raise you up into a new life, give you a new meaning, a new purpose, a hope. Every single human being must wrestle with the question, what will happen to me after I die? And I think it's healthy, quite frankly, at numerous points in our lives to imagine that. Not to be fixated on death, but to just, just to have a sobering wake-up call Am I living my life with significance and meaning and wrestling with this reality that we are fallen and we need a Savior? And I want to invite you today to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can pray today and ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life. And I want to invite you, if you've never been baptized, church in the park at the Boise River, Esther Simplot Park. It's coming up on September 3rd. What date? September 3rd, okay? We're all going to be down at the park at 10 a.m. all together as one church on September 3rd. We've got over a dozen people already signed up to get baptized. And I want to invite you, if you've never been baptized, to ever is still remains of sin and shame and guilt. Allow them to invite you. Sign up online. You can sign up on a Connect Card or sign up online. Hillcityboise.org. People they love as well. Would you stand as we worship our risen Savior? Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.